Hello there. Welcome to the road trip version of our listening series, A New York Yankee in the Heart of Dixie. I'm your host, Oscar Bronx, and I'm back in the Big Apple on my quest to see if I can forgive my psycho mother for, well, as you listen to these stories, you'll understand for what. Anyway, so this morning, I go to the nursing home to see the mother I hadn't seen in nearly 40 years. Run by the city for indigent patients. What a dump. Overpopulated, understaffed, a place old forgotten people go to die. It's sad. My mother's in bad shape health-wise, and she's not lucid. She caused some trouble when they brought her here, so she's been pretty heavily sedated and restrained. Apparently, she stole some scissors to cut her own hair and uh, tried to stab a staffer who tried to take them back. Uh, eh, anyway. So I call an old friend of mine, a doctor, Dr. Jerry, and I tell him what's going on. So he's going to come over tomorrow and ease her off this sedative so maybe she can get lucid enough to talk to me. She shares a room with this great obese mound of a woman named Mrs. Little, believe it or not, who's kind of nosy. First thing she says to me is, So you're Falco's boy, the one who abandoned her, the lucky charm? And then she kind of whispers to me, I don't blame you. She's mean as a snake. They roomed us together because they know if she tries anything with me, I'll just sit on her. (laughs) I think I'll get along fine with Mrs. Little. So I tried talking to my mother, telling her, Hey, Mom, it's Oscar. Remember me, your son, your lucky charm. That sort of thing. Nothing. So I chat with Mrs. Little a while. I go out and chat with the staff for a while, come back to the room, try again to get some kind of response from my mother. Nothing. Doesn't look promising. Before I leave, though, I go over to her wardrobe and open it. You'll never guess what's there. Her other mother costume. Remember I told you about it yesterday? Long black coat, conservative dress, even the long dark wig. All there after all these years. So I reach in the pocket and sure enough, there's the music box I told you about. I take it out. I sit down next to her. I crank it up and I open it and let it play right there on her pillow, close to her ear. I thought her eyes kind of twitched some, and she seemed to grimace, but eh, I'm not sure about that. Anyway, it's obvious I'm not going to get any response while she's sedated. I did not feel hopeful at all, or forgiving. Luckily, I brought some encouragement, an old pack of cards I got from my old buddy Manny Conrad, and each card has a grace written on it. I pull it out of my shirt pocket, thumb the top of the first card up, the Queen of Hearts. I push it up a little more so I can see the grace. Then I get up, say toodaloo to Mrs. Little, go back to my hotel, and here I am. I have to tell you about the Queen of Hearts. Maybe it'll help you understand my predicament. All right, so I'm about 11 years old when this happens. As I told you yesterday, Hans was, among other things he did for the Falco Five, a playwright. He wrote scripts for the plays the Falco Five would put on, but he also tried to sell them to the big-shot theater companies in New York, and like my mother, he kept getting shot down. But one day, he gets word from one of his Broadway contacts that a major theater company wants to put on one of the plays he submitted. It's a play called The Queen of Hearts, and it's based on that crazy character in Alice in Wonderland. And not only that, but he wrote the lead role specifically for my mother, Falco. The way she speaks, her gestures, her look, her timing, everything. And if there was ever a character in fiction my psycho mother was perfectly suited to play, 
It's the Queen of Hearts, with all her vain and violent insanity. Of course, she still has to audition. But let me tell you, this is the happiest, most positive time I had ever seen in our home. It was like her ship had finally come in. Now, like I told you before, I never went to school. Laura taught me to read and write, and I went to the library whenever I could. And so one day, my mother's practicing for the audition, and I'm at the library. And I meet a girl. I had seen her before in the neighborhood, once or twice at the library, and we had kind of exchanged glances once, and I'm intrigued, you know, kind of itching to make her acquaintance. So I see her among the stacks, and she's reaching up, trying to snag a book on a high shelf, and I see my chance. I offer to get the book down for her, even though she's as tall as I am, and she says, please. And I could have gotten a footstool, but no. I had to climb up on one shelf to reach up, and suddenly the bookcase starts to tip, and I jump down and push it back, but not before about two dozen books come crashing down on top of us. And the librarian immediately comes to see what happens, and she scolds me and tells me to use the footstool or I'll be kicked out, and the girl and I look at each other, and she starts to laugh, and so do I. And I tell you, sometimes being a klutz is a real icebreaker. So we start talking, you know, in library whispers. We talk about books and all kinds of stuff, and she asks me where I go to school, and I tell her I'm part of an acting troupe so I don't go to school, and she thought that was cool. First person in my life ever told me I was cool. We hit it off. Her name is Ilsa, just like Ingrid Bergman's character in Casablanca, and man, what a cutie. And I feel like if that's Ilsa, I'll be Rick. Play it, Sam. Anyway, one of the last things she asked me is, so... What are you going to give your mother for Mother's Day? Hell, I didn't even know there was such a thing as Mother's Day. She gets a chuckle out of that. Anyway, she tells me it's the very next Sunday, and since it was already Thursday, I should get her something. So I go home, and I'm flying high and on. Everybody's in good spirits because tomorrow is audition day. And so I catch Hans in the kitchen, and I ask him if I could have some money to get my mom a Mother's Day gift. Now, normally, he would have cussed me out and told me to get lost, but my mother had been treating me like her wonderful little lucky charm, and so he says, sure, and gives me some cash. And Plato and I scoot out and go to the little store that had trinkets and whatnot, and I couldn't figure out what to get, so I asked the woman working there for a suggestion. And she asked me what my mother liked, and the only thing I could think of was that little music box she played with when she was wearing her other mother costume out on the pier when I was six. So the lady says it would be a good idea to get another one, you know, to make a set. And she had a cheap one I could afford, so I buy it. And I plan on giving it to her that Sunday. So the next day, Friday, comes. And off we go to the audition. This always used to be an anxious time for me because I had learned to expect the rejection and the punishment that came after. But this time, she comes out of the audition room, and guess what? She's smiling. First time I had ever seen that. She says they're inviting her back for the following Monday for a second audition. So we're standing on the subway platform, waiting for the train to go home. And we can hear it coming. I've got my hand in my jacket pocket, holding the little music box, thinking how great Mother's Day is going to be. Just then, my mother notices down the platform a little ways, two men standing there. One of them's the director of the Queen of Hearts play, and one of them's a big-shot theater critic and they're talking about what kind of actress it takes to play such a role. And the director says, courage. And the critic brings up, believe it or not, Renee Falconetti. And that's like 
the last thing I hear him say before the noise of the coming train is too loud to hear. I had taken the music box out of my pocket just to take a little peek at it. And when I hear the guy say Falconetti, I kind of jerk. You got to realize, that's a name I have heard spoken with the greatest reverence in relation to my mother forever. And I drop the music box and it tumbles down onto the subway tracks. And I look at it. And I've just about got tears in my eyes. And as I look up at my mother, I realize she's looking at it too. And then she whispers something to Lenny. And then he gives me a shove. And I fall down onto the tracks. And the train's just about there. And for a second, I don't know whether to climb up out or just lie down and let the train go over the top of me. But I see my mother reaching down for me, so I take her hands. And she tries to pull me out, but I'm 11 years old and way too big for that. And I see her glance at the train and back at me, and she tries to let go of me before the train hits. But her ring gets caught in my jacket, and she can't let go. And I see this look of raw terror and hate on her face. Suddenly, Lenny reaches down and jerks me up on the platform just as the train arrives and clips me on the foot before I can get all the way up. And there's a huge commotion, people yelling and gathering around, including the director and the critic. And Lenny's yelling, she saved the boy's life. Falco saved the boy's life. And a transit authority cop pushes through the crowd to get to us and starts asking what happened. And my mother tells the cop that I saw some little toy on the tracks and I jumped down there to get it. So she reached down and pulled me out. And Lenny keeps saying how brave Falco is and how she pulled me out all by herself. And when the cop asks our names, my mother introduces herself as Falco, the actress, loud enough for the director to hear. And she looks at Lenny and asks him if I'm his son. And Lenny says, yeah, that's my son, Oscar. And he says I do dumb stuff like that all the time. And he thanks my mother profusely for being courageous enough to save his son's life. And so the cop chews me out, you know, telling me I could have been killed. And he points to my mother and he says, kid... You ought to be grateful this lady was here for you. Do you know how lucky you are? And we go home. Everybody's congratulating her on her genius move, how surely the critical writes something about it in the paper, how the director will see how she got the courage to play the part. Well, everybody but Plato. He seemed kind of quiet and kept glancing at my way and quietly asking me how I was doing. How was I doing? My mother almost got me run over by a freaking subway train just to get the attention of a director. She even lied about who I was, pretending to be a stranger. Yeah, I was doing just fine. Sunday, Mother's Day, comes and goes, and I have no gift and no desire to give one. None of them, including my mother, even think about Mother's Day. Their spirits are high through the weekend. Me, I'm in shock. When I was six, I discovered she was willing to have my legs broken. Now I learn she's willing to have me killed. It's a pretty grim realization. Monday, she gets the call. I watch her face twist into anger, and she slams the phone down, then picks it up and heaves it at Hans. She lays into him, hitting him, kicking him, screaming at him, accusing him of failing her, and he's cowering and crying like a whipped dog. He tries to blame me as usual, but she just yells at him, It was your script. The boy had nothing to do with that. And Hans gets red in the face and starts to rage because it was his script and he feels just as betrayed as Falco does, maybe even more. 
and he's screaming about the bitch of Broadway, meaning the producers and directors and critics and all the hands and hacks masquerading as stars and all the corrupt bastards who make the decisions and how they're all venal and greedy and stupid and blind to great art and how it's time to get revenge after all these years of rejection. And as he rants, he comes up with a plan for revenge, a plan that wrests control from the bitch of Broadway and puts it in the hands of the Queen of Hearts and the actress who is born to play the greatest of roles. He's all hunched over like some demented Igor or Gollum, you know, froggy eyes, bulging, red in the face, foaming at the mouth, spittle flying everywhere, wheezing and squealing and groaning as he spews out this sewer of consciousness about rewriting his script to crucify the bitch of Broadway like it's never been done before. And they do it from a flatbed truck on Broadway with blaring speakers right in front of the theater on opening day. And it would expose the corrupt bastards once and for all. And it would chase away the audience and financially strangle the production. And it would bring the entire edifice of Broadway down in flames. And the only one left standing high above the rubble would be Falco, the Queen of Hearts, in all her glory. It will be a revolution, he says. And my mother keeps staring daggers at him. And finally, she points at Hans and says, Make it happen. And then she looks at the rest of us, and her eyes fix on me. And she says, All of you, make it happen. And she walks into her dressing room and slams the door. It's six weeks to opening day. Hans is obsessed. He's a slave driver on the rest of the Falco Five and me, but on himself even more. I'd be surprised if he slept more than an hour a night. He rewrote this script and set up the rehearsals. Somehow he got a flatbed truck and the materials for the set and the costumes, the PA system. When we weren't rehearsing our parts, we were building the set, sewing the costumes, practicing the makeup. Anyway, his plan basically has six main characters, one for each of the five cards in a poker hand, a royal flush in hearts including, of course, the Queen of Hearts, plus Alice. Now, Hans wrote the Queen of Hearts role for Falco, and he wrote the Alice part for himself. But my mother nixes that. She insists that the role of Alice be played by me, yours truly, Oscar Bronx, the kid who doesn't have an acting bone in his body and hates acting to boot. And Hans is devastated. He pleads with her. He argues his case every which way he can, but she stands firm and orders him to make the change and shut up about it. So he does. But he fumes about it. And I can tell he hates me for it. Doesn't let my mom see it, but he sure enough lets me see it. And I know. He's going to make me pay. I don't know how, but somehow. We stay busy like never before. Strangely enough, the only thing keeping me from being totally miserable is the work. I actually loved working with my hands and building the sets and making costumes and setting up and testing the PA system and all that stuff. The busier, the better. And so the big day finally comes. We get the set all arranged on the back of this flatbed truck. Everybody's in costume. We test the PA system to make sure it's loud and obnoxious. Hans had hired a driver and a bunch of junkies and bums to be extras, and off we go. And me... I'm a nervous wreck. Not only do I have to act and recite lines, which I hate and I'm no good at, 
but I have to dress as a girl in this blue dress and blonde wig and rouge on my cheeks and mascara and all that crap. And what's worse? Hans won't even let me wear underwear because he says it'll mess up the lines of the costume or some such crap. Oh, man. I'm just hoping I don't have to walk over a subway grate like Marilyn Monroe. But that morning, just before we leave, Hans comes to me and he's acting real nice and he says, Oscar, I know you're nervous, but you'll do fine. Trust me. Here, I always found that eating some sweets just before you go on stage does wonders for the nerves. And he smiles at me and gives me a piece of chocolate. So off we go. Now the plan is, we drive down the street and stop the truck right in front of the theater. It's opening day shortly before the doors open, so there's a huge line of people waiting to get in. And we're supposed to put on this short, like, ten-minute play that dramatizes the greed and corruption of the Broadway system, right? And we've got this PA system that'll blow everybody's eardrums out, and we even have fireworks. And each one of the Falco Five is dressed up as a playing card, making up a royal flush in hearts, and the bums and junkies are all dressed up in business suits, and they're supposed to be running amok in the crowd like the rabid spawn of the bitch of Broadway. And I'm down on the street with my microphone and my mother's way up on the throne on top of the set on the back of the flatbed, screeching like a maniac into her microphone. And at the climax, she's supposed to fire off this Roman candle at the marquee. And all the extras, you know, the junkies and the bums that Hans had hired, are supposed to drop their pants and lay turds on the sidewalk at the entrance to the theater. I kid you not. We had stopped traffic out in the street. All the cars are honking, people yelling at us. There's a huge commotion, just as planned. And let me tell you something. It would have been bad enough if everything had gone according to plan. And it almost did. Except for one thing. From the start of the performance, I'm having this terrible boiling sensation going through my bowels like fire. And I'm having trouble saying my lines in the microphone for fear of losing what little sphincter control I had. And so just when I'm supposed to say the line that prompts my mother's big climactic speech, I hesitate. And instead of firing the Roman candle at the marquee, she aims it right at me. I twist my body around and it hits me right in the back. Freaking colorful balls of fire, one after another. And the back of my costume catches on fire. And my wig catches on fire. And I scream and tear them off and just start to run down the street like a maniac, butt naked. And I totally lose my sphincter control. And diarrhea just explodes out of my bunghole and drenches the backs of my legs. And I'm running and screaming. And guess who I see in the crowd looking at me with her mouth open? That's right, Ilsa, the girl from the library, standing in line to see the show, looking right at me. Let me tell you something. I don't know if it's humanly possible for an 11-year-old boy to be any more humiliated than I am at that moment. So, I keep running. The sidewalk's crowded with people, the street's full of traffic. The first subway entrance I come to, I immediately go down it. I jump the turnstile and I find the bathroom. Now keep in mind, in the 70s, the New York City subways were filthy, disgusting places, crawling with perverts and junkies and whatnot. So in the men's bathroom, there were a couple of freaks going at it in one of the stalls, and one of them had stripped down and left his clothes strewn on the floor. So fast as I can, 
I try to wash the crap off my behind and legs at the sink, and I just put on the guy's pants, and I grab his shirt, and I run out of the bathroom. Lucky for me, there's a subway car there. So I jump in, and away I go. And I make my way home, dressed in the smelliest clothes you can imagine, eight sizes too big for me. But I can't get back into the apartment, because the others hadn't made it back. Late at night, they still hadn't made it back. I'm stuck outside all night. I sleep on a fire escape grate, cold and hungry. Next day around noon, here they come, all five of them in a group. They're all kind of huddled around my mother, who's got this newspaper in her hands, and they're all like pointing to parts of it and chattering about it. Only Plato's looking around, and he sees me on the fire escape. He calls out, there he is. The rest of them don't pay any attention. They're just focused on the newspaper. Finally, they go into the apartment, and Plato lets me in the window. Turns out this newspaper was not one of the major ones, you know, the Times, the Post, the Daily News. It was one of those little niche-market tabloids, and it covered the arts and theater scene from a commie, revolutionary point of view. And the Falco 5 was front-page news. Big story, pictures, the whole works. Big headline, Free the Falco 5. And it had their mugshots. Apparently, they all got arrested for disturbing the peace and illegal fireworks and God knows what else. And it had a picture of my mother in her Queen of Hearts costume way up there on the tippy top of the set of the flatbed truck. But the main picture, the one they used on the front page as the main draw for the story, was actually two very similar pictures side by side. The one on the left was this very famous photo, probably the most famous photo ever from the Vietnam War, of this girl. And she's running down this dirt road after a napalm attack on a village. And she's naked and crying with her mouth open. She had gotten badly burned on her back. So you know she was terrified and in pain. Famous picture, won the Pulitzer Prize if I recall. And right next to it, a picture of another skinny kid running naked down the street, crying in terror and pain, mouth wide open, scared shitless, you might say. And that kid was me. The humiliation I had been feeling ever since it happened suddenly cemented in place in my mind. Now, I gotta stop here for a minute and say this. I can honestly say that this event pretty much scarred me psychologically for life. But whenever I think back on it, I remind myself, that my experience was nothing compared to the Vietnamese girl in that other photo. Nothing. For me, it was Roman candles. For her, it was napalm. So whenever I find myself blaming my problems on my rotten childhood, I remember her. And the thousand other stories I've come across of people who had vastly worse childhoods than mine. And I tell myself, just get over yourself, Oscar. Anyway, back to the Queen of Hearts story. The writer was full of praise for the Falco Five. He called our performance the greatest piece of guerrilla theater ever produced in New York City. Of course, he loved the way our show gave the bitch of Broadway its comeuppance. But his main thrust was that we had made some huge statement about bringing the Vietnam War home to America, and he spelled America with three Ks, you know, one of those types. Of course, No such political statement was remotely in the minds of either Falco or Hans, but they were ecstatic with the praise and the attention. They had to be. That's pretty much all they got, except for minor blurbs in the other papers. 
That incident pretty much sealed the deal against Falco getting any favorable attention from the people who call the shots in the theater world. Hans realized that. It was the last time Falco ever auditioned for a part in a play. From then on, the Falco Five would try to do it on their own. Street theater, guerrilla theater, and plays we put on in Falco's Playhouse. That was a theater we built in this abandoned, rundown section of the building we lived in. They squeezed the Queen of Hearts for all it was worth, but it wasn't worth much. Put it on in Falco's Playhouse. At first they got mm, a bit of a crowd, but interest waned pretty quick, so Hans had to fake it for a while by hiring the bums and junkies to be the audience. When Falco sniffed out what he was doing, she went into a rage. The worst we had seen in a long time. Beats up Hans. Then she slaps Laura. Laura, who had done nothing wrong. And my mother turns to me and says, Look what you made me do. Some lucky charm you are. And then she goes into her dressing room. Lenny's chomping at the bit to break my leg for making Falco hit Laura. Fifteen minutes later, Falco comes out dressed in that other mother costume I told you about. Same deal as when I was six years old. She leaves the apartment, walks down to the pier. Plato and I follow. We watch for a while, and Plato says to me, Go on. You know your line. Say whatever you said last time. Last time. That would have been, what, five years before when I was six. But I remembered it like it was yesterday. This time, though, as I walk up behind her, I'm thinking... I am not climbing up on that railing to tell her I'm a lighthouse. I mean, this was a woman who nearly got me killed in the subway, having me pushed onto the tracks with an oncoming train, and then humiliated me in front of the whole world, but worse, in front of the first girl I ever had any interest in, and she still blames me for her failure. So I'm angry. But when I get close, I hear those chimes again. She's got the music box out. I stand there behind her and listen for a minute. Then I climb up, stand on that flat top of the railing like a lighthouse. I look out over the water. I see a ship, seagulls, clouds. I look down. I see the water. I see my mother looking around as if she's trying to spy someone. An image flashes in my mind of both of us falling into the water. I wonder if she can swim. I know I can't. I look out again. There's a ship out there, I say. Is it mine, she says. Hard to tell, I say. I wave to the ship. I guess we'll know when it gets here. Then I jump down and I say to her, Come on, Mom, let's go home. Anyway, that's my Queen of Hearts story. Make of it what you will. Well, that's enough for tonight. Tomorrow I'm going to meet Dr. Jerry at the nursing home. See if he can adjust her dosages to where she's lucid enough to talk to me. I'll let you know how that goes. I don't know about you, but I'm bushed. Time to hit the sack. Anyway, thanks for listening. This is Oscar Bronx, signing off for Little White Cabin. If you haven't already, go to our website, littlewhitecabin.com, and bag yourself one of our novels. As my old buddy Manny Conrad would say, see you in the funny papers. Peace.